Hey everyone, welcome to the Voice for Israel podcast for May 27, 2020. Visit us at voiceforisrael.com and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other fine podcast services. I'm your host, Peter Reitzis in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Our guest today is Benjamin Ryberg, who is the Chief Operating Officer and Director of Research at the Lawfare Project. Welcome to the Voice for Israel podcast, Benjamin. Thank you. Appreciate being here. It's great to have you on air. Uh, last week, the Jerusalem Post reported, quote, in a significant legal victory against efforts to boycott Israelis and the state of Israel, the National Lawyers Guild, NLG, a civil rights group in the U.S. which supports such a boycott, has come to a settlement with an Israeli organization for refusing to grant it advertising space in one of its publications. Mr. Ryberg, you served as lead counsel on this case for the Lawfare Project. This was a stunning victory. Congratulations to you and your team. Before I ask you about this case, some listeners are unaware that there is a movement to boycott Israel. Please provide us a brief background. What is BDS? What does BDS stand for? And what do we need to know about efforts to boycott Israel? Sure. Well, again, thank you so much for having me today, Peter. And um, we we could not be more thrilled with the outcome of this case. It has uh, been a very long fought battle, as the case was filed way back in uh, in 2016. So, in brief, what BDS stands for is boycott, divestment, and sanctions. As you said, it is cast as a campaign to boycott not only the state of Israel but Israeli entities and Israeli persons. And ultimately, and I think this is really crucial for all of your listeners and everybody out there to understand, is that what BDS, at the heart of BDS, what BDS advocates for is bigoted commercial discrimination, refusing to do business with people uh, or entities because of who they are, because they're Israeli. And I, I think we could probably both agree that if there was a campaign out there to target members of any other race or ethnicity or national origin in this manner, uh, there would be public outcry. And unfortunately, for years, uh, BDS has sort of uh, managed to portray itself as the civil rights movement uh, for the Palestinian people. But frankly, it's anything but. First of all, I, I should also add that boycotting the Jewish people is nothing new. Uh, there were boycotts of Jewish businesses in mandatory Palestine in 1922 before Israel even became a state. Nazi boycotts of Jewish shops in the 1930s. Uh, the Arab League boycott, uh, which is sort of the precursor to BDS, it was an effort to economically isolate Israel, was called for in 1945, again before the establishment of the State of Israel. And then the official, so to speak, launch of the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions BDS campaign in 2005, uh, which again is effectively just a new form of the Arab League boycott, a call, a pressure campaign to push people to engage in this discriminatory conduct targeting Israelis. And um, also, as an aside, we can get more into this later. I'll come up when we talk about the case. But there are a number of laws on the books that have been for years to address and prohibit and penalize uh, these 
very flagrant forms of commercial discrimination. Uh, the New York State human rights law, for instance, that uh, that was uh, on which our suit was premised in, in large part, uh, that was enacted in 1976 to curb boycotts of Jewish businesses in furtherance of the Arab League boycott that I just mentioned. In federal law, there is the Export Administration Act, also from uh, the 1970s. Same thing. Uh, making sure that U.S. businesses were not participating in or furthering these uh, these boycotts from Arab countries that wanted to target and economically isolate and ultimately get rid of the Jewish state of Israel. One more point on this, or a couple more points, actually. Um, first off, if you look at uh, the BDS website itself and statements from its leaders, its anti-Semitic nature is immediately apparent. Omar Barghouti, who, um, who founded the BDS movement, uh, he has said he opposes a Jewish state in any part of Palestine. And he's even said that what that refers to is the land recognized as Israel today. The clear goal of BDS, as voiced by its leaders, is to eliminate Israel as a Jewish state where it cur- currently exists, frankly, anywhere else on the planet. So a key point I think that has to be driven home here is that BDS is really only pro-Palestinian to the extent that it's anti-Israel and anti-Israelis. And when when I hear people who are um, who think they are supportive of BDS or are staunchly supportive of BDS talking about how this is this great crusade for Palestinian human rights and civil rights, I ask them how. And and I never get a concrete example. And the reason for that is because the facts actually dictate in the opposite direction. We don't see uh, the BDS campaign having any impact, really, other than fomenting anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism and anti-Israelism in the United States and abroad, fomenting bigotry. It is not having any material benefit uh, for causing any material benefit for the Palestinian people. To the contrary, we see that when Israeli-owned companies that are operating in the so-called disputed territories, when, uh, when they are pressured by BDS or they are the targets of BDS campaigns, They've moved into uh, w- within the green line, and Palestinians, hundreds of Palestinians, in some circumstances, have lost their jobs, and and this is all the more dire for the Palestinians because few jobs exist within the disputed territories that even pay a living wage. There are interviews readily available with Palestinians themselves who have voiced opposition to BDS exactly for this reason. They're not seeing any personal benefit. The campaign is not having any demonstrable impact or harm to the Israeli economy. So the idea that it is somehow going to pressure change with respect to Israeli government policies, we don't really see uh, the connection there of why what BDS uh, proponents do here has any impact on, uh, on how the Israeli government operates. And there's just so many other, uh, so many other aspects of why BDS is, is just really veiled anti-Semitism. They, they completely disregard the real violations of Palestinians' rights by their own governments. They discount and, and ignore completely uh, major violations of rights in surrounding countries that are far worse than anything even alleged to be happening to the Palestinians by BDS proponents. And it's, uh, it's really a shame. I think that a lot of people are basically duped based on these very bold-faced but sort of heart-wrenching claims about Israel being an apartheid state. Again, this is the when, when you hear something like this, I would ask the uh, the asserter of that point, how are they an apartheid state? 
and, and then you don't get an answer. You get no clear answer or, or no answer that makes any sense because the facts on the ground just simply do not support these allegations and, in fact, support the opposite, that Israel is the one free society, uh, free and open democratic society in the Middle East. So uh, trying to depict it as, uh, as something that it's not simply doesn't, uh, it doesn't have any grounds. Um, another, uh, another thing that we have seen when I mentioned that the main uh, the main impact of BDS is fomenting anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, is there has been extensive research done that shows a clear link between BDS activity and related anti-Zionist rhetoric on U.S. college campuses with incidents of anti-Jewish hostility. Other studies have shown that BDS activity in Europe has coincided with a rise in anti-Semitic violence. So really the impact of BDS is psychological. It's part of the battle for hearts and minds to again, isolate Israel and to turn the world against Israel, dramatic as that may sound, because it's it's stated aims, it simply isn't doing anything uh, that would have any possibility or seemingly has any intention of helping addressing any Palestinian, uh, the situation of the Palestinians today. Wow, the, you you gave a great description of the BDS movement. Uh, I want to highlight your use of the word bigotry, you, you which is a great word to, to use. You mentioned asking BDS activists uh, how they believe that Israel is an apartheid state. And I'm going to say the the question I ask BDS activists when I meet them is I say to them, what other countries are you boycotting besides Israel? You're 100% right. And, and there are none. There never are any. It's just Israel. <laughs> so treating Israel differently than everybody else gets to that bigotry that that you discussed so eloquently. Absolutely, it does. And I, I want to um, go to one more point uh, that sort of relates to what I said already. People really need to realize that the whole of the BDS campaign uh, really relies on distortion, distortion and flat out rejection of clear facts. And I say this because when I look at how the leading BDS proponents, including uh, the National Lawyers Guild, the defendant in uh, our lawsuit, the Law for Projects lawsuit that we'll discuss, uh, there's distortion and de deliberate misapplication of case law that, that these groups advance relating to boycotts. So whenever there is an attempt, whether it's legislative, whether it's a lawsuit to uh, to go after, to uphold the law against unlawful commercial discrimination uh, that is that is being carried out in relation to BDS, um, these groups like the Guild and others uh, claim that just by attaching the word boycott to commercial activity somehow magically turns that activity into protected speech. And therefore, if you're making any efforts to curb, penalize, etc., uh, again, what is unlawful commercial discrimination, that that is actually infringing on First Amendment rights, and you're trying to suppress free speech. And this couldn't be this, this couldn't be less correct. And again, the legal arguments that are advanced over and over again, if, if one were to read the cases, the Supreme Court cases that they uh, that they uh, cite, one would readily see that these cases do not support the legal conclusions and arguments that BDS uh, proponents push for. And it sounds like what you're saying is that at the Lawfare Project, you aren't opposed to criticism of Israel, you're opposed to discrimination against Israelis and Israeli organizations. And that gets us to our big topic today, which is this impressive case that was just settled that you were the lead counsel on. So so back in 2016, an Israeli group called, I'm going to try to pronounce it, Biblio-technical uh, th uh, 
Athenium, you're going to correct me, submitted an advertisement to the National Lawyers Guild, which is a civil rights group based here in the United States. So please walk us through this case and, and what happened. Sure. So um, the National Lawyers Guild had, had been on our radar in a very different context. When I say our, I mean the law for projects for quite some time, because they, uh, along with some other groups uh, that I don't need to name, um, again, have been very active and outspoken uh, proponents of the campaign to boycott Israel and Israelis. And um, again, these are groups that routinely um, misapply, I would I would go as far as saying deliberately misapply a relevant case law concerning the First Amendment in order to try and create this public perception that any anything related to the so-called boycott of Israel is just free expression, and therefore going after it, you're attempting to shut people up and silence speech. Um, so, uh, and, and the National Lawyers Guild, which I believe uh, refers to itself as the the oldest uh, progressive, which I think is a total perversion of that term, uh, legal group in the United States. Uh, tracking them over the years, they they devote an inordinate amount of time to uh, to attacking Israel. That really seems to be their cause still ebb, and unfortunately, uh, does not seem to leave them with much time to address uh, real civil rights issues happening, including domestically. Um, that is just my uh, my take on them, my opinion. But um, I think uh, I think anybody who looks them up can can draw their own conclusions and may agree. So, returning to the case. Uh, Several years ago, in 2016, uh, Bibliotechnical, uh, our, the client in our case, uh, became aware that the National Lawyers Guild was holding its annual uh, an annual convention uh, with, I believe, with various speakers. There was a dinner event, and um, as part of this, it was selling ad space in what was called its dinner journal, sort of a publication that gets disseminated at the gala dinner. This is very standard for these kind of events. Uh, various articles and uh, awards to people, things about the organization, but then lots of ad space where you know anybody who wants. Keep in mind, this both the um, both the uh, convention itself and the dinner journal were open to the general public. Anybody uh, could register and buy a ticket, pay for ad space, and um, and that was that. There were simply no restrictions on this. So um, our client uh, did um, decide to purchase ad space. And uh, it cost $200 in their dinner journal. And what he was going to place was very, very similar to uh, ads purchased uh, in, in past years. And in fact, in the same year, we found out by other lawyers, law firms, etc. Congratulations to the honorees tonight. Good job, National Lawyers Guild, things like that. And um, and he did so. And the, the, uh, it's a congratulations to the honorees, I believe was all it said. And then the name of the company. And then it said... Gush Etzion, Israel, where the company was located. So uh, he, uh, the representative of Bibliotechnical, paid the $200 fee to buy the ad space and thought that was that. And shortly thereafter, he uh, received an email back that was signed NLG, National Lawyers Guild National Office. And that letter said, I'll quote it for you um, verbatim. It said, unfortunately, we have a resolution barring us from accepting funds from Israeli organizations. With that, because of this organizational resolution, this institutionalized boycott that the guild ha- had, you know, they, they're saying, no, we're not going to do business with somebody Israeli. Again, think about the uproar if anybody of any other background uh, was treated this way. I think that the uh, the offending company would probably go out of business. It would be on the front cover of, uh, of who knows how many papers. But here, 
Um, and, and just re- real quick, I'm not an attorney, but this sounds like n- making a decision based on place of birth. I mean, that that's really nasty. That's really, um, yeah, wow. Okay, but please can... That's why I say, sorry to interrupt you, that's why I say, you know, I mean, again, the, the law concerning employment discrimination is slightly different, but if... Let's say I went into, uh, I, I operated a restaurant, this is public accommodation, and um, someone visiting from, I'll say China, showed up and wanted to eat there. And I said, no, I'm not serving you. I'm not taking your money and giving you food because either for no reason or because I have issues with Chinese governmental policies. That would not that would not fly here. Legally speaking, that person could sue in a second. And again, I think there would be uh, there would be tremendous uh, uh, outrage at that. So the idea that uh, that even if you want to go further, which is not what Guild did initially, but say I am going to boycott a person uh, and a person in the United States to somehow influence the decisions of a foreign government, that, that's not that, that's not how our laws work, and that's simply not permissible. You are listening to the Voice for Israel podcast. You can follow us at voiceforisrael.com. Our guest today is Benjamin Ryberg, who is the Chief Operating Officer and Director of Research at the Lawfare Project. You can find out more about the Lawfare Project at thelawfareproject.org. So, Mr. Ryberg, what happened next? Uh, in 2016, the lawsuit was filed, and um, there was an amended complaint that added an additional claim, so I'll just touch on that one. Uh, basically, the, the grounds for the suit, uh, now that you have the factual background, were that under both New York City and state laws, uh, what the Guild did in refusing to sell something to somebody because of their national origin and or citizenship, that this violated several of the city and state human rights laws. Um, uh, one violation is because uh, we argued both the dinner journal itself and the actual event are places of public accommodation, and uh, city and state law prohibits discrimination based on national origin among many other protected classes, such as race, ethnicity, gender, etc., in places of public accommodation. And in addition to that, uh, the city and state have these these two somewhat unique laws that I, uh, I briefly mentioned uh, in my response to your first question that explicitly prohibit boycotting, blacklisting, refusing to deal in the business sense, refusing to sell to, etc., any uh, discriminatory commercial uh, re- uh, conduct based on the target's protected class. Again, here what's relevant is primarily national origin, um, and then the city law also has citizenship. And for all we know, it, it could have been either or both of those that uh, that the guild had a problem with. The Israeli, but you know, we Israeli national origin was the, really the uh, the focus here. So here are the laws, and we're saying you did exactly what the laws prohibit. There is, uh, and again, these laws, the uh, New York State law was enacted to address the Arab League boycott, and it's after its uh, implementation in the United States and the boycotting of Jewish-owned businesses. This is exactly what we see here in this case. So we filed uh, we filed the suit. Um, the Guild uh, uh, filed two motions to dismiss over the course of quite a lengthy period. I offhand I can't remember how long it was between, but um, in both instances the uh, the court denied the motions to dismiss and flatly rejected their arguments. For example, the uh, the Guild tried to argue that. Um, 
public, this was not a public accommodation. The dinner journal could not be a public accommodation. And, um, and the court rightly found based on the existing case law that in New York state, the case law has interpreted what is and is not a place of public accommodation to be extremely broad. So it's not necessarily just a restaurant, a hotel, et cetera, uh, you know, physical places that someone can actually enter into. It can be any number of, uh, any number of other things. And the whole point of these laws and the way the courts have interpreted them is to be as interpreted as broadly as possible to prohibit discrimination within the state. Um, so basically, the court said, "No, I'm, I'm rejecting your arguments that uh, that the convention itself and the dinner journal cannot be places of public accommodation." And then another, the other key argument uh, that um, the guild sort of mysteriously and uh, perplexingly advanced twice uh, in both of its um, in, in both of its uh, motions to dismiss, even though been rejected the first time, was that this was somehow a First Amendment violation that they uh, that they could not be compelled to print something they didn't want to print. And, um, and this, this lawsuit was aimed at making them uh, express something, uh, supposedly express support for Israel, who knows what, that they, uh, that they could not uh, legally be obligated to express if they didn't want to. And again, for, um, for very uh, just reasons, and in line with the case law, the court rejected this as well. And this is what we argued, that New York courts and courts all over the place have long recognized that free speech restrictions are absolutely consistent with the First Amendment, where they serve to protect against discrimination. And, and these laws that are plainly aimed at conduct, not speech. So just as an aside, what, why this is so important is because this goes back to the frequent attacks we see on any sort of laws, either the state anti-BDS laws that specifically concern uh, the, um, the boycott campaign against Israel, or discrimination laws in general, such as those uh, that on which this suit is premised, that um, if I want to boycott, if I want to call something a boycott, that anything I do in relation to that, that's free speech and you can't stop me. Or that because I don't like this ad, you know, I don't want to print this ad, you can't force me to print it because that's somehow, uh, that's somehow violating my First Amendment rights. And again, as has been long established, the court said no. That that, uh, that we have recognized again and again that these civil rights laws exist. I want to say that the court even specifically acknowledged that the defendant, the guild, denied our client the right to purchase ad space and place an ad, not because of the content of the ad. Again, I think this is so so crucial, but because the plaintiff was Israeli. That is that is what the plain language of the rejection email from the National Lawyers Guild National Office. Uh, conveyed. And I think it's also uh, taking into account that even though the Guild tried to advance all these other reasons uh, for why the ad was actually rejected later on, think about what kind of precedent that would have set if the judge had just decided to accept those arguments despite the evidence. This would essentially give the green light to anybody out there who is a bigot, who wants to discriminate against anybody, whether it's again, employment discrimination, housing, what have you, to to engage in flagrant discrimination and just say, well, here's actually another uh, sort of non-discriminatory reason why this should be okay. And then that would be the end of the suit. That would absolutely decimate civil rights law. And frankly, we don't see that happening. So I'm glad that, um, that the court did not take that step here. So the court impressively rejected these two motions to dismiss. And one, from what I've read, that led to a settlement. So what did the National Lawyers Guild agree to do? What was this settlement? What was this victory? Sure. So we were actually quite 
uh, but very pleasantly surprised uh, that the uh, the guild did come to the table and raise that they wanted to discuss settling. Um, we were actually we, we'd gone past these uh, these two motions to dismiss and uh, several other uh, uh, proceedings, and we were just at the uh, discovery phase where both sides to um, produce various documents, uh, do- uh, evidence that are requested by the other side, we would then have moved into depositions. But um, right in the middle of the uh, document production exchange uh, was when they uh, they raised the issue of settlement. The, the settlement also, I should add, uh, I think resulted in a far more outcome than we could have uh, than we could have expected uh, from a court. And also, there's of course the inherent uncertainty of what will happen. You may think you have a slam dunk case. And every, the law and the facts may seem to be completely on your side. And then it can turn out that, uh, that the court or the jury, if, uh, if it is a jury trial, uh, somehow finds otherwise. And that's that. So, um, so we're, we're absolutely uh, delighted with uh, the outcome here. Uh, to go to the, um, the specifics of the settlement, I, first of all, the settlement commits the guild to refrain from discriminating against Israelis because of their national origin. That was their, uh, that's essentially why this whole problem arose in the first place. Um, what this means is that while the guild may continue to express support for the BDS campaign, which it has done in some communications uh, since we reached settlement, the settlement implicitly acknowledges that the very conduct being called for by the BDS campaign, and therefore the conduct being advocated for by National Lawyers Guild itself, that is boycotting Israelis, that this conduct is illegal, and they and the guild can't actually engage in that conduct themselves. They're basically saying here, you know, we're gonna, we may still continue pushing for this, but the very the very actions that we are pushing for here in furtherance of the BDS campaign. Those actions are illegal. Those actions are going to land you in court, and you're going to waste a lot of time. It may be costly. You will. You may end up either the judge may find against you, or you will end up settling and having to do things you don't want to do. But but ultimately, they are committed to not ever doing this again and abiding by the law. Um, we also did work with them uh, to uh, to extrapolate this uh, beyond just Israelis and uh, to make it clear that the organ- the organization was committed to uh, not discriminating against anybody based on their protected class. Again, things like race, color, gender, etc. A few of the other key uh, requirements of the settlement, uh, the guild had to accept the plaintiff's, uh, our client's payment for the ad space and actually publish an ad uh, that was somewhat different. It, congr- it congratulated the guild for its commitment to to non discrimination. Again, said the uh, said the name, said Israel. The point of this was to show that the guild is now actually engaged, you know, abiding by the law and engaging in a commercial transaction with an Israeli. You know, this was not about getting a particular message published in the guild's uh, guild's next uh, dinner journal equivalent publication. This is showing. You did not. You would not accept money from an Israeli and sell them something in violation of the law. Now you are doing exactly that. You are no longer engaging in the boycott. You may be again advocating for the boycott in your free time, but you are not actually living what you are advocating because you know that you cannot. You know that it is illegal. Uh, furthermore, the uh, the settlement affirms that no organizational resolutions of the guild that it has adopted or may adopt in the future are to be interpreted in a manner that requires unlawful discrimination. Again, um, this is important because, as I said, the rejection letter referenced the organizational resolution. And later on, the Guild tried to argue that 
this was some sort of, that the rejection was some sort of misunderstanding of the resolution. I'm not quite sure how it could have been misunderstood. I, I read the, the words of the resolution itself from, I believe, 2010. I may be mistaking the year. But that resolution at issue here that the guild said was mistakenly uh, misunderstood and led to this rejection specifically calls on guild members and, and the, uh, the guild itself to divest uh, from Israel to, and to boycott all Israeli products, commercial services, and travel to Israel. It couldn't be clearer. So I'm not sure how this was a misinterpretation, this rejection of the ad. I think, if anything, it was acting directly in furtherance of it. And perhaps the Guild had not thought about the fact that, again, what they are, what their resolution called for was ultimately illegal. So, um, so they've made it abundantly clear that, that none of their resolutions, none of anything they do are to be interpreted in this manner requiring actual discrimination. Um, again, this is such a blow, I think, to the BDS campaign at large because you're, they're essentially all, this shows they're essentially advocating for something that is illegal. On top of that, the National Lawyers Guild's Board of Directors agreed to enact as a legally binding statement of organizational policy, the statement I alluded to, uh, saying that it does not and will not discriminate based on national origin, race, color, other legally protected classes. Um, in addition to that, within 30 days of the signing of the settlement, the Guild has to prominently and indefinitely display this new statement of organizational policy on its uh, national website. It also has to disseminate this statement to all of its staff and membership, along with a cover letter explicitly stating that that no organizational resolutions are to be interpreted uh, in a manner that requires unlawful discrimination and must be interpreted to comply with its new non-discrimination statement. It has to publish this non-discrimination statement in the next issues of its organizational newsletter and law journal. And um, also within 60 days, uh, the Guild must inform its staff, chapters, and committees in writing of the terms of the settlement and their obligation to comply with it. The idea here is not only are they acknowledging that what they did was commercial discrimination, but they're making it as clear as possible to everybody involved with the Guild what happened here, that there was this lawsuit, that there was this settlement, what they are agreeing to in order to uh, to avoid discrimination like this from happening again. And I certainly hope that anybody else, uh, any other groups or individuals or businesses out there that are contemplating actually carrying out BDS and implementing a boycott, refusing to do business with somebody, that um, that this is a teachable moment for them. And they realize what will happen if they actually go ahead and do that. Allow me to savor this for just a moment. It sounds like through this settlement, you are teaching a so-called progressive organization to act in a way or to better understand non-discrimination policies. Do I have that about right? <laughs> That's basically it. Yep, we are. The case uh, The case happened because a so-called progressive lawyers group that claims to be dedicated to uh, civil and human rights uh, went out and blatantly and unapologetically uh, violated someone's someone's rights. So there you have it.
Hmm. This is the Voice for Israel podcast. I'm your host, Peter Reitzis, and I'm joined today by Benjamin Ryberg, who is the Chief Operating Officer and Director of Research at the Lawfare Project. So let me ask you this. On May 21st, the National Lawyers Guild took to Facebook and posted, quote, a lawsuit intended to harass the National Lawyers Guild over its support of boycott, divestment, and sanctions BDS movement for Palestinians' right has been voluntarily dismissed, end quote. So the National Lawyers Guild seems to be implying their own victory here. What do you make of this post? I wouldn't have expected anything less, frankly. Partly, as I said, these groups that are the leading supporters of BDS have a... Uh, a neck or a tendency to spin things far beyond the realm of, of what reality would support. Uh, I think it was, I think it was damage control. And I think frankly, um, people who take them seriously and uh, subscribe to the same misguided, unsubstantiated beliefs regarding uh, boycott of Israelis, I, I'm sure this just, I would think this just feeds right into, uh, into what they already think. So it didn't surprise me at all. Of course, they're going to try to spin it, uh, just as they have tried to spin this as some attack on free speech when, again, this lawsuit concerned commercial conduct, not free speech at all. And um, I, I did read that release in several articles written about it. I really thought it was, it was frankly laughable uh, in its attempt to pick the settlement as a victory. The, the guild really agreed to everything that we asked for um, to make an example of this and to do everything possible to prevent such discrimination from happening ever again. Uh, and as I said, I think it's it's bigger than that. It's a blow really to the uh, larger boycott campaign for exposing it for what it is. There's so much on the table here. I'm just going to observe that sometimes the BDS logic is upside down. It's not logical at all. And I've mentioned this on a recent podcast where I was having a conversation at a synagogue with members who unfortunately are BDS activists. And I mentioned my personal belief in a two-state solution. Mm -hmm. And their and their response was, oh, well, that's a Trump position. That's white nationalism. And when you take a step back and you think advocating that two people who have been fighting for many years each end up with a state and peace that's somehow white nationalism. You know, it's an upside down world. Uh, so I understand so much of what you're saying. Let me ask you this. Case law is important. And so your, your victory here is hugely important. And it was also an out of court settlement. So is there any concern that there's a lack of case law here? Well, frankly, there really isn't. Uh, fortunately, there there is excellent case law, which is why you know why we brought this case and why we were very convinced it would have been successful even if it had gone to court. Um, you have numerous cases; they may not specifically address conduct that is related or motivated uh, by the BD, by BDS efforts or BDS advocacy. But we have case after case where you know if you if you boil it down, discrimination based on national origin, some that were even far less uh, flagrant, more uh, sort of masked attempts to or, or masked discrimination or masking the the uh, discriminatory intent. So the case law is is already out there. If anything, when the law for project, to my knowledge, was the first. Uh, the first organization, first anybody to identify the New York uh, state human rights law in particular, New York's law that prohibits discriminatory boycotts, say this this is immediately and obviously applicable to uh, to what BDS calls for. Why is nobody talking about this when it's been in the books since the 70s? 
So, um, and again, as I mentioned, that law was was enacted to address the um, the Arab League furthering boycott of Jewish businesses in New York. So, um, I really don't think it's it's a problem. The facts of every case are different, and even if. Uh, this case had um, reached a final decision in our favor. Another BDS-related case uh, that come that may come along later uh, with with even slightly different facts, you know, could be decided differently. On top of that, uh, I think it's this is partly a reason why we this was never even brought up, but we would never have agreed to a closed settlement where it, uh, it maintains uh, it has to be kept confidential. Um, it was crucial. Uh, that this case and and uh, the implications of it that they be made public, so as hopefully to deter similar bad conduct, and as I said, relatedly to uh, to expose BDS for what it is that it's that you do it, it's it breaks the law, it is discrimination. This is not freedom fighting or whatever other buzzwords are thrown at it. So um, I, I really don't think it would have made a huge difference as far as future cases. And I think um, I think uh, this is so important also why, and I, I want to thank uh, the media, people like you, who are drawing attention to this case, uh, because people need to know about it. They need to know so that they don't engage in the same bad conduct and don't get um, suckered into, uh, you know, suckered into some of the uh, distortions of BDS. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I think an open settlement like this that gets a lot of attention is is just as meaningful, really. So Benjamin Ryberg, you've been so generous with your time. Last question. Is there anything else about this case that is important that you'd like to share with us? Um, yeah, I, I touched on this a bit earlier, but I, I really want to drive the point home uh, because it comes up uh, so frequently in articles that are supportive of BDS, in articles that um, that seek to attack the many uh, state laws that specifically prohibit states from contracting with or investing in uh, companies that participate in a boycott of Israel and Israelis. And the point here is that the decision and the actual carrying out of a discriminatory boycott that targets someone because of who they are, whether it's their national origin or, again, any of the other protected classes, that is not speech. That is commercial conduct. And, and these two are totally separate and they are not treated the way uh, the same way in the eyes of the law and uh, related to that you know, the fact that you you have to express something you have to tell somebody either in the written form or orally you know, no I'm not going to do business with you uh, whether you give a reason or not but uh, but again it's it's a uh, this is a discriminatory act you're not doing business with them because of who they are the fact that there is some that speech is somehow incidental to carrying out a commercial transaction as it often is or refusing to carry one out that does not magically make the commercial conduct the the actual act action excuse me the carrying out of the boycott that does not make it somehow speech that is protected under the first amendment so anytime anybody sees an attack on um, on these attempts to uh, to regulate to penalize to prohibit bds related conduct not advocacy uh, i would i would very carefully inform yourself on what's going on and probably take them with a grain of salt 
Well, Benjamin Ryberg from the Lawfare Project, I want to thank you for standing up and speaking out against discrimination against Israelis, Israel, and the Jewish people. It's so very important. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.